Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. They said to me, that's love. Yes, yes, not a doubt. Now you see how easy it is. They said to me, that's friendship. Yes, yes, no question, you found it. They said to me, here's the place. Stop, raise your head and look at all that beauty, that order. They said to me, come now, you're not a brute beast. Think upon these things and you'll see how all becomes clear and simple. They said to me, what skilled attention they get, all these dying of the wounds. I say to myself, sometimes, you must learn to suffer better than that if you want them to weary of punishing you one day I say to myself sometimes Clove you must be there better than that if you want them to let you go one day but I feel too old and too far to form new habits Good. It'll never end. I'll never go. Then one day suddenly it ends. It changes. I don't understand. It dies or it's me. I don't understand that either. I ask the words that remain. Sleeping. Waking. Morning. Evening. I have nothing to say. I open the door of the cell and go. I am so bowed I only see my feet if I open my eyes. And between my legs a little trail of black dust. I say to myself that the earth is extinguished. Though I never saw it lit, it's easy going. When I drop, I'll weep for happiness. Never have so many words been written about a writer who you could say used so few. What was it about Samuel Beckett? I pose this question to Associate Professor of English at DCU, Michael Hines. Michael, what was it about Beckett? What was it that inspired such a torrent of other people's words? I suppose so. I, I've never heard of a writer so yeah. written about. Well, one of the things is, it's a bit like, think about the attraction of abstract art to people, right? Uh, the less obvious sense it makes, 
the more perhaps it kind of inspires people to try and make their own sense out of it. And you could say that sometimes in literature that comes with silence or the blank page. Now, that's not to say that Beckett produces blank pages, but he certainly gives you very little to work with in terms of making conventional sense. Um, you could say one of the problems with Beckett then is that that licenses uh, people like me to make a career practically out of interpreting him, to kind of write over the top of him and say, look how smart I am, look what I made of Beckett. And yet, really, when we go back to Beckett, um, that's the most preposterous thing of all to be doing, to be imposing your will upon his words, because one of his great themes is that no matter what we say, no matter what words we spend, um, there's always a suggestion that we're we're wasting those words or that we're wasting we're wasting our time. You are listening to the Gary Cook podcast, and today, as you can see, we are going literary, uh, and we are looking and celebrating one of the world's greatest and most enigmatic writers, uh, Samuel Beckett, uh, with also excerpts uh, of Beckett's work, courtesy of Clada Records and their kind permission. So, Michael, Samuel Beckett, considered to be one of the most influential and greatest writers of the 20th century, justifiably? Uh, absolutely. Um, but I guess it's a peculiar form of influence because in many ways what he does seems to run counter, even in the, the, the foundational understanding of what art we tend to think of art as being progressive art as something where uh, we think of it as an achievement in many ways Beckett casts all of that in negative terms to be somebody drawn all the time to talking about um, diminishment about failure except he does say things like fail better the curious thing about Beckett is that it's a, you could argue it's a very sort of negative experience entering into the world of his writing at the same time, there's something quite liberating about it because it brings you up against the wall. It sort of takes you to a place where nothing really seems to be possible. And in many ways then, out of that, you sort of discover, okay then, so be it. Let's see what happens now. You know, the curious inspiration. Some of the people who've taken the greatest inspiration from Beckett have been uh, people in situations where conventional freedoms are denied to them, like prisoners. Some of the most uh, powerful performances of Beckett early on were by prisoners. Um, some of the best scholarly work that's been done on Beckett has been done by, by prisoners. You know, people writing PhDs in jail because Beckett understands what it's like to be immobilized and trapped. And that really, in that situation, all you have are words um, to sort of express yourself, to kind of put yourself into a place other than this world where you're stuck. And that is liberating but also you keep coming up against the idea of well my words at the same time limit me and that's the dilemma in Beckett you have language it's what defines us it's what we kind of live through it's what we do everything via and yet language is not always adequate to what we do or what we think or what we feel for the person who may not know about Samuel Beckett and um, uh, what it is about him. Um, thematically, what was he really getting at? What was he really saying, do you think? What drove him? Well, I mean, the, the, I, I guess the sort of, the, the, the common answer to that would be uh, 
that probably nobody has ever written more about alienation and feeling um, radically different or other from the conventional order of being, right? But at the same time, having to live a normal life, right? But at the same time, feeling slightly disengaged from it. And you can see that across Beckett's writing, this sort of sense of things being that what should be familiar seems very unfamiliar, right? Uh, and if you are interested in pushing the kind of idea of just how unfamiliar an ordinary life might seem, that's that's where Beckett brings you. But it's a bit like looking at a Picasso painting. You know, you don't look at a body in the same way again once you've seen it given the Picasso treatment and it's turned into sort of weird angles and triangles and pillars. Beckett does something similar. It's that it's that radical. He asks you to look at things in a completely different way. I shall soon be quite dead at last, in spite of all, perhaps next month, then it will be the month of April, or of May, for the year is still young, a thousand little signs tell me so. Perhaps I am wrong, perhaps I shall survive St. John the Baptist's day, and even the 14th of July, festival of freedom. Indeed, I would not put it past me to pant on to the transfiguration, not to speak of the assumption. But I do not think so. I do not think I am wrong in saying that these rejoicings will take place in my absence this year. I have that feeling. I've had it now for some days, and I credit it. I could die today if I wished merely by making a little effort. But it is just as well to let myself die, quietly, without rushing things. Something must have changed. I will not weigh upon the balance any more, one way or the other. I shall be neutral and inert. No difficulty there. Trolls are the only trouble. I must be on my guard against trolls. But I am less given to them now since coming here. Of course, I still have my little fits of impatience from time to time. I must be on my guard against them for the next fortnight or three weeks. Without exaggeration, to be sure. Quietly crying and laughing without working myself up into a state. Yes, I shall be natural at last. I shall suffer more and less without drawing any conclusions. I shall pay less heed to myself. I shall be neither hot nor cold any more. I shall be Tepid. Hmm. I shall die tepid, without enthusiasm. I shall not watch myself die, that would spoil everything. Have I watched myself live? Have I ever...
complained. Then why rejoice now? I am content, necessarily, but not to the point of clapping my hands. I am satisfied. There, I have enough. I am repaid. I need nothing more. Let me say, before I go any further, that I forgive nobody. I wish them all an atrocious life, and then the fires and ice of hell, and in the execrable generations to come, an honoured name. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie? Doro. Make friends with innovation. He is considered to be, as we all know, um, uh, one of the, the most influential playwrights of the 20th century. And his play, uh, Waiting for Godot, um, was uh, one of the, I mean, probably at the, the very apex of literary achievement in theatre yep. uh, of the 20th century. Uh, a two-act play, as you say, where nothing happens twice. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have any clues in his background as to where this kind of uh, both incredible bleakness mm. uh, and and humor and humanity uh, were were coming from? Well, the, a key thing to understand is how much Beckett loved silent comedy and how much he loved um, the kind of way in which uh, artists like Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy. Charlie Chaplin, of course, had sort of developed clowning in the 20th century into a particular form of, um, what would you call it, hilarious sort of abjection. You know, that, that these films tend to start from somebody with no backside in their trousers and having to cope with that and this sort of feeling that everything in, in, in life has the potential to conspire against you. So with Buster Keaton, who Beckett really, really loved, with Buster Keaton, it comes from things like machines or just, you know, you know, his famous film, The General, where this very accomplished train driver, you know, he's trying to just drive his train at a certain point of the film. And yet everything, the most familiar pieces of machinery can ensnare him or kind of feck him off the, uh, the train or whatever, you know. And so that kind of particular sort of sense in which even your everyday materials, the stuff that you're familiar with, can somehow catch you up or entangle you. Beckett loves that idea. It comes back to it time and time again. Normally he's talking about how we get entangled in language, but in his theater work, he also gives us um, sort of visual demonstrations of that. You know, in many ways, Beckett's most characteristic work, I think is not really done for the theater. Like Waiting for Godot was his most celebrated play, but you could argue it's an exception almost because so much of his greatest writing, I think is in prose and in um, the novel form, and then also in kind of other forms of kind of prose writing that almost go beyond definition, he comes back time and time again to the same kind of idea, 
which is fundamentally the idea of being stuck. What does it feel like to be stuck? There are an awful lot of different ways to get stuck. And a lot of people feel stuck. I feel stuck. You feel stuck. We all feel stuck. Uh, we're entitled to feel stuck. That's actually almost definitive of being human. That sounds like a play by Beckett. We're entitled to be stuck. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck, but I'm not as stuck as you. Oh, right. Uh, and we you see, maybe this... Now, if we wanted to sort of tie this to someone's background, we can say, listen, you know, Beckett is the product of a, a privileged class. Uh, Beckett is possessed of a privileged form of understanding that is the shows the benefits of a privileged education. Okay, so he was he was born in 1906. He lived in Fox Rock. He lived, Ooh, yes. he lived in the same kind of territory as um, as as Russell Carroll Kelly. <laughs> um, and uh, he was privileged. Uh, Church of Ireland, Black Rock, went to yeah. or uh, Fox Rock, went to uh, Portora School. Yep. In Enniskillen. Yep, same as Oscar Wilde. Uh, yeah, so the, so he was from the class of privilege, really. Yeah, so let's say if he's stuck, he's luxuriously stuck. But at the same time, that perception of being stuck is something that takes on different shades. I mean, you know, famously, the story is he was out for one of those walks that... Uh, he all, went out with his all, father. Yeah, and I, I got grown up amongst fancy Protestants. I know what fancy Protestants like to do. They like going for walks in the, in the hills for no reason. <laughs> That's I'm sure. Out, son, we're going for a walk. Why are we going for a walk? No reason. He going was for a walk, and they went up the top of the hill and looked down at the city centre in Dublin, and there was the Easter Rising happening, almost as a kind of landscape painting from which they were slightly detached. And of course, they were slightly detached because they were in such a kind of safe section of society that even a revolution wasn't going to kind of really hurt them. Well, in the way that a lot of his work sort of seems to happen outside of space and time, I do get this very detached feeling, particularly from Irish sort of history of what, what we would consider the kind of orthodox experience of, of Irishness at that time. Whereas he doesn't really have that. I mean, he was in Trinity College. Yeah. He seemed to skate above all of that stuff. He was going to Paris in 1913 to study. He was an amanuensis for James uh, Joyce. Yeah, and Joyce tried to tried to persuade Beckett to marry his daughter, Lucia. And, uh, and failed. Oh, yeah, because Beckett was nothing <laughs> intelligent about what, was, what people were attempting to do him, indeed, to get him even more stuck. <laughs> and he, he took, took the necessary steps to escape. Uh, now, his early works, his first novel really was more pricks and kicks, mm. which was uh, banned, I think, and um, apparently 465 uh, on the banned list. He was, That was his number. Yeah. Uh, what was it about more pricks for kicks that upset well, the, the thing about Archbishop? A lot of Beckett's early writing is full of um, sexual innuendo, for example, full of kind of you might even say sort of schoolboy schoolboy humor at times. You know that's that's part of it. There's an obvious offense in Beckett's work, right? Um, and you get that. There's a very strange early thing he wrote called text, just a text called text. And it says, come, come and call, come, come and call me. And, and it starts talking about, uh, you know, um, putting a, a forelock and clap dish on your Galaga skins. It's a bit like comedy in Shakespeare or something like that. You know, it's sexual. Uh, it's definitely sexual, but you go, I'm not exactly sure in what sort of sense, but my God, this sounds filthy. But also with Beckett, there was the relish for the sound of the words in themselves which almost is the point. It's actually how to enjoy Beckett half the time. It's just immerse yourself 
immerse yourself in the words and immerse yourself in the rhythms and treat them almost as a kind of music and you'll get a kick out of it you know uh, he had a I think he had a lovely line about uh, in one of his was it what the novel where he referred to uh, this um, uh, the civilized world and mm. Ireland uh, which <laughs> so again but it, it's it, it's it's very much that he was other that he wasn't of this place really mm. And I know he, he decided to go to, to France or to settle there pretty much around the turn of the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, and France at war was better than Ireland at peace. So what was it about the, the Paris and the French thing, do you think, that... I know he studied French and he was... Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose that this is the, this kind of thing where he arguably, as a true alienist... He felt more at home in another language and in another place than he did in his perceivedly native country. The whole idea of being native and being born is a big problem in Beckett. You know, one of the his later texts called Fizzles begins with the sentence, I, 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 I gave up before birth. <laughs> and there is also this thing in Beckett where he claimed having consciousness inside his mother's womb. Um, claimed that there was, that there was some... I can't remember if he or Jenny there happened on Fox Rock and he claimed being able to hear these voices undergoing the humdrum chatter of a, a late afternoon tea in Fox Rock and then going like, I can't, I, I can't face being born into this. This is intolerable already, right? So it's, I don't, I wouldn't think about, I, I wouldn't think about the, um, the embrace of Paris as necessarily a, a thorough ideologically motivated rejection of Ireland and, and Irishness. I don't think he's thinking in those terms. It's it's more fundamentally a matter of desire. Where can I get the things I want? Um, and uh, with Beckett, like like plenty of Irish people, his, his thoughts were actually on booze and sex. And that's 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 what he went after. Yeah, I love his um, his kind of descriptions of Irish people at the races and just generally, you know, or what is it? We have no political opinions, simply limply Republican. <laughs> it's a beautifully kind of dismissive quality to to that whole trope, dare I say, of, of notions of, of Irish nationalism and so on. Yeah. But they do not give a fart in their corduroys uh, pretty much for for most things. Other than than what people are really uh, really into, one of his early works, Murphy, yeah, incredible insight into his <laughs> sense. So almost, dare I say it, a Tarantino esque, as in Quentin Tarantino quality, to the very beginning of that of that uh, book, um, where the character is strapped oh, uh, right. uh, naked to a chair. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I hadn't thought of it. In those and ideas, there's another one. character in it um, who has got the ability to stop his own heart. <laughs> He's somewhere between heart attack and cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, and uh, is. Um, but that's a delicious power in Beckett. Like that. That's actually that is a godlike bar, right? You know, that's the <laughs> that's the part he wishes everybody could have. You know, which is this great. But it, this is the kind of thing. This is where he's like, um, he's sort of playful with that idea too, like. Like Hitchcock, you know, who famously had the fantasy of having these buttons that you could press in the movie theater so everybody would feel the same emotion at the same time, you know? You know, abject terror here, right? Delight here, sexual titillation here, and stuff like that. The kind of... The idea of power that's sort of implicit in that, and I think that's there in that character. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if you could just make things stop? 
<laughs> because everything else in Beckett is about how you can't. And that's the irony. You know, he keeps showing his characters strapped to chairs or buried up to their necks or stuck in bins. Or whatever. And yet they keep on keeping on. Not because they're heroic and not because they're kind of, uh, as the Australians said, honest battlers, you know, like uh, putting up with life's um, vicissitudes or something. It's just, there's just no option. Because, of course, people go, well, you know, Beckham was so miserable. Why didn't he just, you know, uh, commit suicide? And of course, that in itself would be far too heroic. Perhaps it's a dream, all a dream, that would surprise me. I'll wake in the silence and never sleep again. So it'll be I, a dream, dream again. Dream of a silence, a dream silence, full of murmurs. I don't know, that's all words, never wake, all words, there's nothing else. You must go on, that's all I know, they're going to stop. I know that well, I can feel it, they're going to abandon me. It'll be the silence, for a moment, a good few moments, or it'll be mine. The lasting one, that didn't last, that still lasts, it will be I. You must go on, I can't go on, you must go on, I'll go on, you must say words as long as there are any until they find me until they say me strange pain strange sin you must go on perhaps it's done already perhaps they have set me already perhaps they have carried me to the threshold of my story before the door that opens on my story that would surprise me if it opens it will be i it will be the silence where i am i don't know i'll never know in the silence you don't know you must go on i can't go on i'll go on That doesn't give uh, any real insight into who Beckett was, in my view. Um, I, I don't think suicide was ever uh, really... I mean, the characters could consider it, and they, they, they're kind of on the edge of non-existence and what's non-existence like. But I don't think it was suicide in the sense of of, of, of just going and killing yourself. No, no. It was a different kind of... Uh, and that's where it's actually... That's what makes Beckett so funny. You come up against Iron Man with these miseries, but the miseries of Beckett are not big operatic ah, miseries. Mm. They're kind of ongoing daily. What's that scratch at the bottom of my foot? You know, it's, I think it was um, Anthony Cronin, Cronin's biography of Beckett, and he suggested that he reckoned Beckett had serious skin conditions. He'd suffer terribly with boils in the back of his neck. And Cronin goes into this thing about, well, imagine. You know, stiff coloured shirts they had at that time and having to put one of those on as it was bristling up against your, your boils and pimples all day. Because that's Beckett. That's Beckett. You know, we're, we're all a bit susceptible to coming up with big explanations for Beckett. But I kind of like the the zit one. You know, like this idea of the endless kind of perpetual minor torment that at the same time you know how to live with. And it's weird how that's unexplored, really, as a literary theme. And yet it's exactly what we all do, one way or another. So Beckett's, even if even if Beckett's arguably uh, a, a toffee-nosed Protestant from Fox Rock, nevertheless, he actually has more insight, perhaps, into a, a kind of common humanity that we might initially acknowledge. Because what, but what he does do is strip away illusions. So uh, Beckett um, makes a decision to uh, go to France uh, in around the outset of the Second World War and joins the French Resistance, for which uh, he was uh, given a medal, wasn't he? He was given yeah. an award. I mean, and I think, I mean, it actually is kind of heroic and dashing sounding. You know, you put it in the right context. He was riding around in a motorbike as a sort of messenger and. Um, and he was in the south of the country for much of the time. He was in a place called Roussillon. Roussillon, yeah. 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 So, um, 
Yeah, and again, that sort of seems to sit at odds with the idea of him as this great immobilizer and somebody who freezes people all the time. But this was a different kind of context, wasn't it? You know, so I mean, I mean, it's interesting. You look at other writers who were in France around the time, P.G. Woodhouse sitting there uh, making the odd radio broadcast actually to say everything's fine. Absolutely, everything's fine here, uh, which you got a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble for after the war. And then you have these radical American writers like Gertrude Stein, you know, sitting, waiting the war out down in Provence. It's only Beckett who's actually really doing something, if you like, actively on behalf of, well, you know, let's let's call it the forces of anti-fascism or whatever, you know. So, you know, clearly Beckett found that intolerable, so intolerable that he was actually going to do something. One gets a feeling of a guy who was fairly committed to the idea of, well, you know, anti-fascism and uh, freedom. And far from this idea of the kind of the pointlessness of life in some nihilistic way. Yeah. Because obviously what the Germans were doing in the Second World War was profoundly nihilistic. Um, <laughs> uh, so he's not, he is in many respects, the, the, the uh, force very much uh, against that. How much did that inform his work? Because I knew he, he he wrote what when he was there, and it was after the after the war that he kind of went into that trilogy of novels. Uh, Malone Malone dies, uh, the unnameable, yeah, uh, and uh, Malloy. But this is, I think, I, I think you could argue the experience of the Second World War is really fundamental in his work because this is a time, not least because this is a time when people were humans were being regarded as inhuman or reduced to inhumanity. Now, that's something that Beckett was kind of, he was interested in. The funny thing about Beckett is he apparently was interested in humanity reduced to its sort of last ebb. But nevertheless, he remained interested in humanity. He didn't want to see it actually eradicated. He was fascinated by how it couldn't be eradicated and would exist in trace form, even if there were apparent devastations. So there's this kind of weird residual quality where even if things, this takes on a kind of perversely radical nature in the context of World War II and, and everything else. And we, we know there, there are illusions here and there in Beckett's post-war writing to the Holocaust, for example, right? That this assertion, however minute of what it is to be a human being and to be distinct from other forms of, of, of being, that's exactly where his work lies knowing that all of these external forces are looking to reduce you to something other than that. Um, that puts things in a necessarily kind of bleak context. However, that's the context within which we have to work and understand ourselves. Uh, not to entertain the illusions that something like that didn't happen. Right? So it's all getting very fancy, but you know. So in his work, um, particularly in his novels, the, uh, and as they, as they progressed, mm. Uh, the idea of conventional ideas of plot and character and timelines and time and space were something that he just kind of did away with, he really. Just, just he, they weren't of interest to him. Okay, why? And and what was the reaction of the literary world and the wider world of readers to that? Uh, well, in terms of a, in terms of a conventional readership. Uh, I'm not sure Beckett ever really had that anyway. So people who were looking for a conventional, traditional structure 
as you might find in a kind of highly conventional novel, the kind of novels that we read and forget about every every year. That that's not what Beckett's looking to satisfy anyway. So you could argue that probably his novels are very kind of avant-garde and experimental and they're speaking to people who are looking to look at things in that way. So in the same way, I think I've already, you know, talked about something like Picasso. It's an instructive thing to look at Beckett in the same way. Somebody who keep, kept on refashioning how we look at reality because he thought that was a worthwhile, interesting thing to do one way or the other, you know, that he's an exploratory artist in that way. So the kind of the market for that is limited. However, in the aftermath of the Second World War, not least because far more people started going to college in that period. It was actually a moment of kind of cultural liberation and people began to question what was achievable in culture. Beckett's almost ready-made for that moment. Yeah. Okay, so it's post-war. It, it chimes with the, with the themes of his work mm -hmm. uh, and also the industry of academia talking about... I mean, if you really want to push this, you can Beckett. sort of go, you got this idea of the theatre of the absurd emerges in the 1950s, 1960s. In many ways, that whole idea of the theatre of the absurd was promulgated by cigarette-smoking intellectuals. <laughs> possibly French wearing, intellectuals. Thank you. Possibly wearing black polo necks. What, what, what playwright more than Beckett... Uh, encouraged him to think of things in this way as you know a new turn in art a new turn in understanding a whole new kind of set of coordinates for reality Beckett's offering them but he's offering that by taking everything familiar away so uh, I think uh, he wrote Waiting for Godot initially in French as you know as he wrote, mm -hmm. wrote French uh, on Godot, mm -hmm. um Waiting for Godot it was pretty well received I think in France the early early I think it was 52 and then it went to um, it went to the Soho Theatre in mm -hmm. London, mm -hmm. and was met with uh, you know everything from uh, dumbfoundedness to derision. Right. Uh, although it was the literary critic Kenneth, Kenneth Tynan who was on to it quickly as being a work of absolute in, majesty. In many ways, you want that mix of response to to prove that actually something is seismic something's making a kind of uh, a radical kind of shift in terms of how we might understand so just think about the the riots of the playboy of the western world great great works of literature necessarily excite controversy they have to yeah in many ways you know a work is a great work of literature if it makes somebody somewhere feel like banning it <laughs> you know, if everybody loved it, it wouldn't be doing the work of what makes something new, something, uh, something that's sort of demanding that we learn how to read it as we look at it or learn how to watch it as we watch it. That all of our kind of inherited mechanisms are not going to be that much use to us. It's like that with a Beckett work of fiction. You can't read a, a work of Beckett's fiction, even in the same way you would read you know, uh, Joyce, it's that different. You know? Well, didn't Beckett himself have this um, sort of revelation, really, about, about that Joyce was taking taking everything to the, to the very edge of learning, to the knowable, yeah. and he was bringing in completely the opposite direction. Isn't that right? Yeah, he said the whole, there's a great, there's a great interview with Beckett where he defines himself in relationship to Joyce, and he says that Joyce is a, a sort of somebody who can, 
and I'm somebody who cannot. <laughs> and he's referring to things like Finnegan's Wake and the, you know, the, the working title of Finnegan's Wake is Work in Progress. And the idea of progress for Beckett was very, very fraught and very, very kind of painful. This idea that you could look at Joyce's writing and sort of argue that he's pushing all the, the way all the time towards a kind of internationalization, you know, in Finnegan's Wake, this kind of incredible book that speaks a hundred languages, if you like, and puts them into a kind of fugue-like musical structure. And you go, oh my God, the, the, the wonder of it all. Joyce could sentimentalizing Joyce a bit, but you could say he's trying to get us to experience some kind of wonder. Whereas Beckett is saying, you know, Joyce shows you that he's master of language. I am interested in the opposite of that. I'm interested in sort of exploring how um, language kind of exists outside of me and that it doesn't feel as if it's under my control. And yet perversely Beckett, we see as being all about meticulous decisions, yes. meticulous pieces of control in terms of how his plays should be performed. Well, that brings me uh, right up to the present because, I mean, very recently, as we know, there was an issue in, uh, where the woke world finally met right. uh, Beckett and Waiting for Godot couldn't be done because uh, there was no women who were auditioned for three male roles. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I mean, what would Beckett himself, do you think, have made of that? I don't know. Frankly, I don't know, because Beckett actually was more for all that we, we've given him this reputation of the, the sort of difficult director as if as if he was a kind of fascist in boots. You know, that guy, that, I'm trying to remember what German film director it was. People used to parody, you know. Um, the, but anyway, I don't think Beckett was really like that. And I don't I, I don't think Beckett necessarily would have had a problem. Not, you know, it's not as if Beckett was hostile to to women he was you know but his estate is very much uh, yeah very controlling the work and how it's... however they didn't have a problem with robin williams and steve martin doing waiting for godo and ad living and more or less every single line to the point of tedium i would say um that 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 in itself and then you know look at me you know invoking the piety of the, the original <laughs> text of waiting for godo the way i would look at it is that this actually brings us back to the idea of banning something. This is this is what tells you Waiting for God it was still a great play. The fact that it can excite people into things like this and excite controversy in that way. But uh, all this current controversy means is that in two years' time there will be an all female uh, uh, waiting for Godot, and then we'll we'll be we'll be just we'll just get on with it. Uh, and we'll be waiting for that Godot. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I love the, one of the things about um, about uh, Beckett's when he was questioned about it was waiting for Godot, waiting for like death, God. Yeah. And he goes, if it was waiting for God, I would have called it waiting for God. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some of the greatest quotes of anyone I've yeah. ever heard. Unlikely quotes. He said, <laughs> there is no greater hope than the first four hours of a diet. <laughs> um, and that's where he really sounds like wild. Right. Yeah, that's where it actually. And you do wonder who was teaching in Pretoria at the time, who was teaching composition to 13 year old boys. <laughs> producing these amazing kind of wordsmiths, you know. Uh, he won uh, the Nobel Prize uh, for Literature in 1969. Uh, and uh, I think his wife, Suzanne, said that this was a catastrophe because he was such a private man who obviously had had uh, intense control over his own life. Uh, and this would catapult him into the kind of realm of superstardom. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and did it. I mean, I, I know he was a celebrated figure around the world, but... I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's almost you could have a whole separate discussion on what the Nobel Prize really means, and you know, and... The, uh, and some writers obviously really want it and crave it and huff when they don't get it. We won't name any names, but that's the No, do no, who huffed when they didn't get it? Uh, what? Who huffed? I couldn't possibly tell you that, Gary. Let, let's <laughs> it's a matter of public record, you know? <laughs> but with with him, because the thing about the Nobel Prize as well, it's not it's not a prize for literary merit. It's to do I think the actual wording of it is something to do with like works of literature that help enhance uh, or the progress, I think, of human society or something like that. And you go like, that's so funny, you know, given that Beckett, as I said earlier, he's kind of hostile, not hostile, but he's very skeptical about the idea of progress, you know, um, because he's skeptical about the, the arrogance of that, the representation of that idea to ourselves, this idea that, oh yes, you know, we're progressing and all, as if we weren't causing devastation in our wake as we do it, you know? <laughs> And Beckett's so, yeah, can I just show you these scenes of devastation here that are also part of our common humanity? So it's kind of, it seems funny that they were given the noble, given that if he, if, his great contribution to humanity in many ways is to tell us not to think too much of ourselves. Or maybe just to try not to think so much at all. Um, but that, that that's a, a powerful, a powerful argument, you know. But he's the rebuke to things like the noble as a kind of garland or a gong, right? <laughs> Is plays Craps Last Stand uh, or tape. sorry, Craps Last Tape, excuse me, um, and um, Endgame mm. sort of uh, uh, approach the kind of subjects of older age and the fact yeah. that this is the end and mm -hmm. do you think that these kind of senses of of, of beckett's pointlessness and and that life is you know can can go horribly wrong was became even into more focus with age um possibly because i think you can represent that in different ways because um it on the one hand, it almost seems as though Beckett gets sort of more minimal as he gets older as a writer, that he he, he writes um, he, he writes even more kind of concentratedly. The texts get shorter. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, that work called Fizzles, which is a good example of that. But I would also argue that there's a phenomenal kind of uh, sense of uh, livedness in that late work um, that in fact it shows tremendous understanding of what it is to be older and what it is to have endured and you know to, to carry life with you for such a long time hardly anybody ever gives voice to that uh, anywhere really yeah. No, well, no country for all men type yeah. thing. It's, uh, it's, um, it's it's not necessarily a kind of marketable point of view, but it's there's a remarkable kind of candor in the way that Beckett does it. This sort of sense of ourselves as people who carry around an awful lot of language and an awful lot of thoughts, and that those in themselves become almost kind of unreliable in our own heads. Beckett writes about that uh, brilliantly, trying to sort ourselves out in terms of our memory and things like that. And those, you know, kind of minute derangements that we all have to live with um that you could argue that that's actually his theme 
many ways it's it's his theme in art in his early writing too but it's it acquires powerful powerful focus in the late part well i think one of the lines that sums him up uh that could uh, claim to to throw light on it is is the sun shone having no alternative on nothing new <laughs> uh, it, it kind of even the sun gets invoked into this tapestry of kind of the same same shit different day yeah but why the point is also why torment yourself with the idea of newness why torment yourself with the idea that it has to be new right that this idea of a kind of a, a, a deliberately calculatedly positive emphasis on everything is in itself a kind of torture why not just wake up and say ah again it's the day again <laughs> it's the day again as it was yesterday and as it will be tomorrow do you know what that's all right which brings us neatly to this recording ah the poor old lousy old earth my earth my father's and my mother's my father's father's my mother's mothers, my father's mothers, my mother's fathers, my father's mother's fathers, my mother's father's mothers, my father's mother's mothers, and my mother's father's fathers, and my father's father's mothers, and my mother's mother's fathers, my father's father's fathers, and my mother's mother's mothers, and other people's fathers and mothers. An excrement. The crocuses and the larch turning green every year, a week before the others, and the pastures red with uneaten sheep's placentas, and the long summer days and the new mown hay, and the wood pigeon in the morning, and the cuckoo in the afternoon, and the corn crake in the evening, and the wasps in the jam, and the smell of the gorse, and the look of the gorse, and the apples falling, and the children walking in the dead leaves, and the larch turning brown a week before the others and the chestnuts falling, and the howling winds, and the sea breaking over the pier, and the first fires, and the hooves on the road, and the consumptive postman whistling, the roses are blooming in Picardy, and the standard oil lamp, and of course the snow, and to be sure the sleet, and bless your heart, the slush, and every fourth year the February day backle, and the endless April showers, and the crocuses, and then the whole bloody business starting all over again. A turd. And if I could begin it all over again, knowing what I know now, the result would be the same. And if I could begin again a third time, knowing what I would know then, the result would be the same. And if I could begin it all over again a hundred times, knowing each time a little more than the time before, the result would always be the same. And the hundredth life is the first, and the hundred lives is one. A cat's flux. Now, I know certain actors have been very much uh, associated with Beckett, including uh, uh, Jack McGarren, who we've just uh, been listening to, uh, and also uh, the Irish actor Barry McGovern. Mm -hmm. One of the things I know Barry McGovern uh, said about him was uh, that he was you know, quite amiable and so on, but but didn't do gratuitous small talk. Mm -hmm. I remember. Uh, what, what What is the general view of what Beckett was like? Oof. 
I mean, I think this is the it's the classic thing, isn't it? To to people that to people that who were close to him, they are relatively guarded about what that relationship was like, as if kind of respecting the terms <laughs> of their relationship. So it's it's not easy to say, and you can read a lot of speculation, you can read a lot of biography, which will give you all sorts of details, but it doesn't necessarily give you the temper. I mean, the thing with Beckett is that he was he was quite a sensual person in lots of ways. Like he, we talked about booze and sex earlier on. He definitely he he liked those things. Whether or not, but he, I, I think you'd be he would you would you'd be pushing it if you called him dissipated or degenerate, you know. And it's so he often with with thinking about him, I think about um this great um psychoanalyst Adam Phillips, who's also a great essayist. And he says, you know, there is no such thing as a normal sex life. Um, and in many ways, that, that is a kind of interesting way to think about someone like Beckett, who had a, a complicated private life, relationships, and like, you know, relationships with a couple of women. Yes, complicated always means more than one, yeah. doesn't it? He, and he, yeah. he was married to Suzanne, who was French, and he was also... Uh, having a, a a parallel relationship with Barbara Bray of the BBC, down and out in Paris and London. I mean, the I mean, it's, parallel lives, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. I I just I, that sounds like a lot of stress. Actually, I would have thought, except he probably managed it in a way that wasn't that stressful. You know? If if it was a if it was a source of major inconvenience to Beckett, I'm sure he wouldn't have been doing it. I'm wondering. Really, the question I'm asking is: Was he, in his own head, a kind of a legend and a, a reach uh, reaching demagoguery status? Was he aware <laughs> of himself in that way? Well, like everything else, there are times where he really can't resist uh, puncturing a certain self-image. You know, he's drawn, particularly in the sexual domain, without getting too explicit about it, but he's continually drawn back to uh, almost schoolboy self-denigration in terms of sort of in, inveterate self-pleasuring, shall we say, and things like that. He's a great finished uh, one of his pieces one of the fizzles where he said what what ruined me at bottom was athletics <laughs> me me aged 40 and still throwing the javelin <laughs> i'm not sure exactly what to make of that but it does sound like he's enjoying a metaphor there but that that's that that's the thing about the the thing about Beckett is to 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 again i just see it as I, I, it's it's funny to say, I think you're just saying it, you know, like there are real times in Beckett where you can hear what other people say and what other people think. He actually keys into a kind of mode of thought that a lot of us experience. We experience it inwardly. I think what Beckett's brilliant at is the kind of grumbling we sort of do to ourselves without necessarily uttering it aloud. That's why these prose fictions are so powerful in the maybe even the radio pieces too. That, that you know, rather than the kind of theatrical projection of a voice outward, where Beckett is most Beckett is that sort of the kind of rush of language you might have when you wake up in the morning, but you haven't quite woken up. <laughs> that kind of inward racing consciousness, uh, which includes uh, calling yourself for being a terrible agent. Well, that 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 theme is in his some of his plays as well. Mm. Um, uh, is it not I? 
for instance, where there's just a mouth on stage, <laughs> but the mouth speaks at the speed of kind of light or oh, at the speed yeah, of yeah. thought. Yeah. Uh, and what what would you say he's doing there? Like the speed of thought very often is not particularly, is it instinctive or is it just well, not not that interesting to if me? You, anyway? If you think about the other way around, it's where outward utterances are examples of us trying to impose a certain kind of grammar and a certain kind of ma- measure on what we're thinking. But as we think of those things to say, God knows what other things we're thinking. We're not really choosing to bring those into language. but So that's what he's exploring. It's the torrent. And it, it's such a weird kind of torrent of language that at times he has this kind of stream. It, it, it's not ungrammatical. It's not just a sort of, it's not stream of consciousness as such in the way a lot of the time we understand it. He's interested in kind of weird patterns that we might evolve in language, the way we might kind of repeat things to ourselves. But all the time you're taking what you say away from the conventional daily sense function of language, and then language is something else altogether. (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd love to hear what my own Beckettian interior dialogue would have been looking at you, looking at your mug. Him in his office here now, me asking him questions. What's the point? Why am I doing this? Oh, I'm getting paid. Am I not very much anyway? Oh, isn't he quite handsome? He's got a good head of hair. What do you think of Beckett? And at another level, you might be just going banana, banana, ski jump. (laughs) Nobody, not even Beckett goes banana, banana, ski jump. It's one of his great lost works. Okay, so so the... um, legacy of Beckett I know people like Harold Pinter and Tom Stoppard and so on but one gets the feeling that it's that it's far greater than just other kind of writers of that kind of uh, minimalist theatre that it Mm. that it's everywhere oh yeah absolutely I mean in that I think probably where Beckett is particularly inspirational for writers uh, is because he models just how radical a path you could take as a writer if you want to you know um, and he managed to do what he did without having to feel particularly exercised by the demands of the market he wasn't able to produce what the great one of my favorite writers Herman Melville called botches because Herman Melville said he was always trying he could never write what he wanted to write he was always having to comp you know to compromise to kind of satisfy whatever perceived public taste was I get the feeling that Beckett more or less got to write what he wanted to write he didn't compromise which made him very unusual maybe that's also because of his background he had enough to live by that he didn't have to pander what a you know what artist in this world what what sickeningly arrogant ambitious artist doesn't want to think of themselves in that way I don't need to pander you know <laughs> So Beckett didn't. Can I ask you? I mean, who do you, who do you see having an influence, uh, or that he had an influence on, or somebody who has uh, done a Beckett, as it were, in modern literature? Has anyone? Uh, I think some of the sort of stranger kind of no, you know, uh, novelists like uh, Roberto Bolaño. I don't know if you know him, the, Ch- the Chilean novelist whose novels do not read like novels, but they're hugely funny and entertaining at the same time, mm. even as they might be dealing with themes like, you know, uh, the serial murder of women in contemporary Mexico and stuff like that. I mean, it's just how he quite manages to do that. He causes all sorts of trouble in your mind as you read these things. Um, so that really 
you're altered forever. I mean, it, there are things like uh, even McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing strikes me as it's a sort of it's written as a kind of monologue as a kind of interior monologue and again we can that art of the monologue is something that Beckett takes to places that nobody else quite had I would have thought in in, in theatre does Sam Shepard have have elements of that is kind of um, exploring yeah Yeah. and not not least because shadow world of characters yeah and showing characters in relationship who don't really know how to talk one another yet they're stuck with one another that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's tangibly there. I mean, what, what fascinates me is the idea of, you know, uh, where you then can think of sort of Beckettian tropes in more familiar genres like police dramas and stuff like that. And, you know, the kind of idea of the, the detective who sort of senses the futility of what they're doing. Nevertheless, they carry on detecting that kind of stuff. So... Um, there, there's a great police procedural, a Romanian movie called, uh, what's it called? Police Adjective. Weird, weird title. But I mean, that, that the temper of Beckett is what extends everywhere. Rather than seeing very direct remodelings or kind of very faithful kind of, uh, you know, borrowings of his sort of shapes and forms. I think it's, it's, a, it's a more sort of diverse effect than that. It's. So, Beckett's legacy mm. uh, is not so much something to be remembered as it was, but possibly his greatest legacy is something that will keep on having an influence because it, what he tapped into, yeah. cannot be be kind of uh, stopped. Yeah, and it's because it feels actually almost unrepeatable. It's hard to imagine that anybody would do something as singular as what he did, you know? Uh, Like, I actually think it's practically inimitable, unless there's some vile bot being invented by Elon Musk that can now write things just like Beckett or something like that. But you really are dealing with somebody whose signature is all over what they write. You know, that that sense that, that we have, the same way we have an adjective uh, Kafkaesque, we can have Beckettian because it does sort of signify a very particular way of thinking about the world and thinking about language. Um, and, you know, not, not, not every writer, not even every great writer um, gets to do that. Well, Michael Hines, Associate Professor of English at DCU, thank you very much. And we will play you out with some of the themes that we have been talking about embodied in the voice of the great Jack McGowan. to need anyone just to myself stories 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 years and years of stories till the need came on me for someone to be with me 
anyone a stranger to talk to. Imagine he hears me. Years of that. And then, now, for someone who knew me in the old days, anyone to be with me, imagine he hears me what I am now. Father, you wouldn't know me now. You'd be sorry you ever had me. But you were that already. A washout. That's the last I heard from you. Wash out. Are you coming for a dip? No. Come on, come on. No. Glare, stump at the door, turn, glare. A wash out. That's all you are. A wash out. Again, slam life shut like that. Wash out. Wished to Christ she had. And that was Jack McGowan reading from Embers, recorded in 1966. This podcast is brought to you by Senior Times in association with Clatter Records. And with a very special thanks to our sponsors, Travel Department, Expressway and Doro Phones. And will phone poke a new wet, and will knappy no foom nis orge wet. Nis eskele husod, faker na phone in takatal gwin on show, egg doro. And phone kliste is dany, gidi gohon la hai glina, agus taskina. Tarod egen, gogoktina. Tanismo Olis Egg Daro.com